Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to episode 226 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the one, the only, the great, the fantastic, the marvelous, Mr. Daniel Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, Dan? I'm not living up to any of those things this oh, week, but I'm, doing, yes, you are. but I'm doing my best. How about you, Leslie? Oh, hanging in there, same as everyone else. Uh, this week, the WGA strike officially turned 100 days old and officially also passing the Guild's last work stoppage in 2007, which lasted 99 or 100 days, depending on how you count them. The studios are actually now, just this just in, going back to the table with the WGA on August 11th. And Fox has officially moved the Emmys from September to Monday, January 15th, 2024, a week after the Golden Globes and the MLK federal holidays. So lots going on, uh, lots of dominoes falling here, and uh, hopefully that something comes as positive comes out of this meeting. But just the fact that they're meeting again after last week's busts is a step in the right direction. Tis indeed, and the Emmy news is... You know, it's predictable, but it's also, it's still sad because, of course, the Emmys traditionally have their window where they're kind of the crown jewel of the start of the television season. And it's September and they have everything to themselves. And, you know, January 15th, among other things, it's completely hopeful in assuming that nobody's on strike then. So that's probably the first thing. But also... Yeah, it's it's just a bad time for the Emmys. It's a bad time for the Emmys because they're going to be going head-to-head with NFL playoffs. It's a bad time for the Emmys because they're going to be right in the middle of all of the winter awards season stuff for movies, which will all seem vastly more pressing and current than this will. And just the fact that they're now going to be a week after the Golden Globes kind of only underlines how strange the positioning is. Like, okay, so yes, the Golden Globes are garbage and irrelevant, and and let's, you know, get that out front. But that being said, the Golden Globes already honored the first season of The Bear. I'm I'm just using The Bear as an example because it premiered in June of 2022. So this means that Come January 15th, there's a chance that the Emmy voters are going to be giving an award to the first season of The Bear one week after the Golden Globes presumably, very possibly, could be giving awards to the second season of The Bear already. It is it is just going to be so totally stale dated and irrelevant, which is not ever what the Emmys want to be and is not good for Emmys business. And there's just there's just nothing to be done about that. You know, that so this this is sad, this is bad. 
the only people practically to blame are the AMPTP who had two different guilds on strike and were unable to negotiate with any of them for a hundred days. But regardless of who you want to blame or who you don't want to blame, this is not anyone's best version of where the Emmys go. Yeah. And my question is, is, you know, look, using the last strike as a benchmark, if it lasted a hundred days, they started talking after day 20 something last time. We're a hundred days in now and they haven't started. They're just now really starting to talk again. So last Friday, the August 4th meeting about meeting produced a WGA proposal. And now this meeting on August 11th is the studios and streamers response to that. So this is just the starting point. So that means that you've got what, let's be generous and say 70 days, 60 days left, right? So two months, August, here we are, August, August, so September, October, maybe, and then you can get into it. But like we're farther apart this time than we were in 2007 when it, we were talking about new media, which obviously is Netflix and streaming. But now the, everything is much more compli- uh, complicated because you've got AI and they're offering the DGA deal as a pattern, meaning on, on similar issues, many of which aren't even included because the Writers Guild and the DGA, the DGA doesn't care about room size. That's a, a, a an issue that's specific to the WGA. So there's a lot of negotiating that has to happen here. And my question is, is God forbid if the Emmys has to move off of this date, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I guess the, the reason that they're, that they even had to announce this date anyway is because they have vendors and all this other stuff behind the scenes that they have to deal with contractually. But yeah, it's a mess, Dan. They they had to say something. They had to plant their flag somewhere. The fact that they planted their flag in the middle of a vast field of flags is just where they are. Um, but yeah, as as to all of those things you say, it would be nice if the podcast had a, a hypothetical guest who could discuss some of those things and how long the actual negotiation process could hypothetically take. Once somebody gets back to the table, yeah, it would just be great if this podcast had an interview that could cast some light onto those things. Well, guess what, Dan? You're in luck because we already have one. Hey, I see what you did there. Oh, yeah. That's right. We've got an interview with Chris Kaiser, who joins us for the third time and his second in as a... and his second in his capacity as co-chair of the WGA's negotiating committee. So we recorded that on Tuesday, day 99 of the strike, pegging it to the 100th day. So the a, an edited version of that, a condensed and edited version of, of that interview posted already on THR.com. But co- we're going to have the full interview, which is about 45 minutes. So it's a good one. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of talk about when they're going to go back to the negotiating table. But we found that out today. As we record this, it's August 10th. The interview was done August 8th. So we'll be a little bit dated, but you get the general idea when you hear it. Indeed. Number one. But first, as we've been doing for the past couple of weeks, in lieu of headlines, we've been doing mailbag segments. And y'all have been coming up with great emails. And we are always here for those great questions. You can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the numeral 5 at thr.com. I'm sure Leslie has an additional uh, plea that she wants to make tied to some of her favorite things. That's right. Yeah. If you would like a very snazzy TV's top five sticker, limited edition sticker, go ahead and uh, send us a mailbag question and drop your address in at the bottom and I'll, I'll get you one out in the mail. Indeed. 
Up first on our mailbag, Sean writes that the as the networks scramble to salvage their fall season, there are a lot of shows that were made exclusively for streaming services, and I'm assuming that they're contractually tied uh, to only streaming. But why do you think the networks aren't negotiating to put shows like Peacock's Mrs. Davis or Poker Face on NBC, the Disney Plus drama and or on ABC, Paramount Plus's Star Trek Discovery or Evil once again on CBS? A lot of people may have already watched those shows, but they would be new for non-subscribers and perhaps an impetus to get people to sign up for a streaming service later on. I'm going to answer this with one word. Dan, can you guess what it is? Uh, I'm just going to assume uh, that you are going to quote the classic Dick Ebersol line, which is the answer to all of your questions is money. That's right, Dan. It is about money, of course. So if a show that is made specifically for streaming airs on a broadcast network, those involved with the show have to be paid residuals. So that's a big reason why you're not seeing that. But, you know, there is a little bit of that that that's happening. We know that ABC is going to air Miss Marvel uh, ahead of the debut of the Marvels uh, because obviously those two things play into each other. But in a larger sense, the reason that you're not going to see some of these shows on, on broadcast is, A, they're not made for a broad audience. These are kind of niche shows that are made specifically for a streaming service. Although I do think that a show like Poker Face, for example, could absolutely work on NBC because you've trained that audience to expect procedurals where, where you, you tune in one episode and it's boom, here's the beginning of the story, the middle of the story, the end of the episode, and it's all contained, right? And then, you know, there is obviously the, a little bit of a, an ongoing storyline with Poker Face, but that I think would work. Although I don't know about the profanity and, and some of the content, you probably have to air it at 10 p.m., which is a tougher thing. But either way, it, it is about money and, and not having to pay residuals. Yeah, I think as, as you say, I think Poker Face is an easy example. I mean, given that it is so totally inspired by the, uh, you know, the classic 70s crime shows, there would be absolutely no reason why I couldn't work on broadcast. Mrs. Davis, to me, wouldn't work on, on broadcast at all. But of the shows Sean listed, a lot of them would. Poker Face feels like it, it you know, at a 10 p.m. slot, it would work. Obviously, evil can work on CBS, kind of, to some degree. It, it, you know, still could. Uh, Star Trek Discovery... I would say less so, but I think Strange New Worlds absolutely could uh, could slot in. I mean, remember when Star Trek Discovery was supposed to premiere first on CBS and then launch on CBS All Access, which is obviously the former Paramount name of Paramount. Vaguely, Plus. that was that was a long time ago. I'm not sure I remember many things from then. Uh, you know, Brian with, Fuller was still attached with Miss Marvel. I mean, you articulated exactly why it's airing on ABC. It's because the tie in to the Marvels is a big tie in, which is to say. I watched the trailer before some movie or other, and I tried to ponder if you were somebody who hadn't watched the Disney Plus series, obviously, probably you're not wholly stupid and you'd be able to figure out what was actually happening. But still in all, I watched the trailer. I'm like, oh, that was a character who was introduced completely and totally in a television show that a lot of people didn't have access to. And a lot of people are probably like, wait, where on earth did she come from? And am I supposed to have seen her before? So sticking that on ABC makes rather valid sense. I, you know, from a purely business sense, it doesn't matter how many people do or don't watch it. It gets that additional level of exposure so that people aren't completely perplexed by where that character came from. So, and, yeah. and that's the thing that the show did best, incidentally, is introduce that character. So, I mean, the show's cute. Oh, the it's, show's it's cute. so cute. 
this show's cute and charming, but I, I don't know that the show is really all that thrilling or expansive, except for in its look back on Indian history and stuff where it actually was. But but like what it did was it introduced a character and it gave that character significantly more time to breathe than she would have if they just introduced her in the first three minutes of the movie, which I assume they will also do. I assume there will be a full, there will be, there will be three or four sentences of exposition that will catch you up in case you didn't watch the series. But it's not. Yeah, and you can only, also go yeah. back and, and listen. I'm interrupting you, Dan. I'm sorry. No. But you can go back and listen to our interview with showrunner Bisha K. Ali about the Miss Marvel finale. That was in episode 177 from July 15th, 2022. And, you know, really, really quick, you know, this is such a smart question uh, from Sean because, you know, without writers really promoting their shows and actors promoting their shows, Peacock announced this week that it was going to air the first couple episodes of season one of its Craig Robinson comedy, Killing It, on USA Network, as well as releasing some of the uh, episodes on TikTok and YouTube. So that's a, a great way of exposing a show that's coming back for season two that doesn't have the core people that it needs to promote it properly of, of using NBC's portfolio, right? I mean, it pop it on NBC over USA, but USA is using the live tune in for wrestling as a way to kind of hope that people who finish watching wrestling will leave it on and, and discover this and be like, oh, that's interesting. Look at this. This is cool. So up next, uh, Scott writes, we all know shows like The Wire that were ignored by the Emmys, but what shows over the last 50 years did Emmy voters seem to love? But looking back, it seems like they were extremely overrated or don't hold up. Dan, what you got? Well, it's, it's a tough question because the 50 years expands it's it a into a big question. We could do a whole podcast for that. You could. And and there's you know, fifty years takes us back into the seventies. It takes us back into the eighties. And and the Emmys really were a different creature back then, in large part because television was was different. And and so it's it's kind of hard to to say exactly. It's a lot easier to look back at the last 20, 25 years, basically the the cable into streaming era. And and so, you know, I did that. I, I flipped through various Emmy year-by-year Wikipedia pages. And I think, like, the biggest place, and this has always been a drum that I banged on an annual year, is that sometimes it's hard to get Emmy voters to notice your show in the first place. But once you start winning, it's sometimes very hard to get Emmy voters to realize that the show that you are now isn't the show that you necessarily were three years ago, and yet they keep voting for you. And so... A lot of the things that that to me are the biggest misses that won awards are just the things that kept going too long. Like like Modern Family, you look at the first couple seasons of that show, and I completely understand why that was a show that was being recognized. It was a broadcast comedy that was doing different things, that had a spectacular ensemble, and they wanted to to honor what that still meant at a moment at which cable and streaming were beginning to proliferate and it was becoming more and more clear that you couldn't be a broadcast comedy or a broadcast drama any broadcast show and expect to compete but the you look at at modern family winning five consecutive comedy series emmys that's ridiculous and you look at some of the things it was beating in those last two or three years it, it's it's completely absurd, and a lot of the awards that it was winning for acting in those years were totally on autopilot. It, that was just not 
Emmy voters <laughs> paying any attention at a certain point. They were they were checking boxes and and honoring a thing that was very very popular and and obviously helped along those same lines. And this is probably the obvious one and the first thing that people will think of honoring Game of Thrones in its first handful of years. Totally, totally logical. Completely understand honoring Game of Thrones in the last couple of years significantly less logical. Well, part of the problem there is that in the first few years for Game of Thrones, it wasn't winning everything. And that was because there were a lot of the sort of legacy shows that were going off the air that were honestly better, but still less big, less huge, less of a phenomenon. Whereas it got to the end of its run and there were, there were other shows that were coming up, but at that point they were just checking the box for Game of Thrones, and that's what it was. So you look at those last couple of years of, of Emmys that Game of Thrones dominated, and it's crazy. But I'm always a little bit uncomfortable with any sort of dominance where it isn't completely unambiguous that the show deserved every single one of those things. So like I've, I've said this before, the year that Shit's Creek won everything on the comedy side, did I begrudge Shit's Creek for winning a handful of Emmys and for having that moment in the spotlight and its recognition? God, no, of course not. It wouldn't have been my choice, but but totally understand what was being honored there. But the fact that there was that year where it won for writing, directing, every single acting performance, etc., kind of over the top. Similarly, along those lines, all of the, the, the sort of passing of the baton in the variety comedy category from Daily Show to Colbert Report to Last Week Tonight, and with those shows being basically unbeatable in various competitions means a lot of stuff didn't get recognized that probably deserved it. Doesn't mean that the Daily Show, Colbert Report, and Last Week Tonight weren't great. And then, of course, other things kind of jump out. The, the various more fraudulent wins, whether Downton Abbey in the first year as a as a limited series, miniseries, or, you know, Big Little Lies and White Lotus, both winning in very recent years in limited series categories, and then suddenly for their second season having to pop up in, in drama categories. Though those look like bad wins in retrospect. But just to sum it back up, the the, the ones that stick out most to me do tend to be the great shows that the Emmy voters honored long past. Because otherwise, then you're just getting into things like, so I get pissed off when John Hamm didn't win an Emmy for the year that his submission episode was The Suitcase. And you go, okay, well, fine. Who did win that year? And it was Kyle Chandler for the last season of uh, <laughs> of Friday Night Lights. And I'm not gonna, I can, I can only be so angry about that. I'm happy that Kyle Chandler won that Emmy. So I'm not gonna be like, that oh, was ridiculous that he won and John Hamm didn't win for the suitcase. Well, yeah. I think probably he should have. But I mean, it, it's funny that you mentioned that because while you, I was listening to you speak here, the first thing that popped in my mind is all of the times that Friday Night Lights should have won or should have been nominated. And then finally, when Kyle won, it felt like, okay, we finally got something for that show. It's my favorite drama. So, I mean, I'm obviously biased, but. Oh, totally, totally reasonable. And I, I think I think th I think that was where Scott started the question, which was, you know, we we talk all the time about the things that are constantly being ignored, but what did they not ignore that was a problem? And even then, it's always the conversation that people have where they're like, well, if you're if you're going to talk about what got snubbed, you have to say what didn't deserve to be there. So this is sort of the other side of that equation. And I've never had a problem <laughs> ever saying what doesn't deserve to be there in addition to what they left off. So 
fully reasonable. Anyway, thank you to this week's questioners. And as always, and I'll repeat this once more in the podcast towards the end, you can send us questions for future mailbag segments at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. TV's Top 5, the numeral 5 at THR.com. Number two. Up second, we return to the strike zone. This week, the Writers Guild has officially been on strike for more than 100 days, surpassing the 07-08 work stoppage. Negotiations are now scheduled to resume August 11th for the Guild and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, who represent the streamers and studios. The meeting is expected to include the studios' responses to the WGA's latest proposals that were outlined in the August 4th meeting to talk about talking. To check in on where things stand, we are joined again by WGA Negotiating Committee co-chair Chris Kaiser, who makes his third visit to TV's top five and second to speak about the state of the writer's strike. Kaiser previously joined us in episode 213 in mid-May, mere days after the strike started, and back in episode 162 in support of his Max series, Julia. And a programming note, this interview was recorded on August 8th before the news broke about the August 11th return to the table. Thanks again for joining us, Chris. Oh, it's it's uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Leslie and Daniels. So let's start with the most recent development. Walk us through what happened with the August 4th talks about talking meeting where both sides reunited to see if there was a path forward to resume negotiations. Sure. I, it, first of all, I have to say probably you know everything that I know because we put it out in the email that we sent to our members and that was really pretty exhaustive. I would also say, I, I don't want to spend too much about this meeting. It was a meeting just to talk about the contours of the negotiations, the parameters and all of that. A, a pre-meeting, as everyone said, it, it didn't go perfectly well, obviously. Um, the conversation, I think, probably eventually turned on Carol saying, we're going to talk about some things and Ellen saying you're going to need to talk about everything in some way. And Carol saying, I need to get back to you and talk to the companies, my, my the, the member companies and, but I'll get back to you and we're waiting to hear. So a stutter step, I think, but not really worth worrying too much about in the long run. Well, how would you describe what the temperature in the room was when you guys walked in versus when you walked out? Oh, well, I wasn't there. I just want to be- <laughs> I mean, I mean, in the, in the big picture, or how how would you describe what you've been told then? I guess about the temperature of the room. Oh, it's all it, look. Things are cordial with the AMPTP. You know, we don't. This is not. People are not yelling at each other. Everything is very professional, but, um, coldly professional. Probably the coldness is uh, you know <laughs> metaphorical. Um, so, but uh, no one needs to worry about that. Um, and the WGA, I, I can only speak for us. We're really not particularly interested in playing games. We just need to go in and talk again. Talking is the only way forward. Um, and so, as we've said all the way through, we're, we've been here, we're ready. Um, look, I, I will say, because all of this comes out on the 100 days, and there's this sense somehow you, you label something 100 days like it's some kind of celebration. It's, it's, a, it's an anniversary of shame for the AMPTP. Let's let's be really clear about that. The there was that early comment in the press about trying to starve us, and then uh, they walked that back and said, "Of course they're not, but of course they are." <laughs> that's what that's what a hundred days is. I you know all of our members we can make a TV show in a hundred days. They can't seem to get back into the negotiating room and have one substantive conversation. They will, but I just want to be clear on it. This is. Uh, 
it, it, it's a day of, of infamy for the AMPTP. It's, it's shameful. They obviously, uh, either they cannot get it together and they got to figure that out to come back to us, or they intentionally are not getting it together. I mean, on the AMPTP's part, um, in which case they are doing precisely what they claimed they wouldn't do, which was to try to create a situation in which people who are hungry and desperate no longer have the will to fight for their own survival. That's not going to work, but it's a, it's, it's a, and it's a, it's a tactic that management will use. I understand it. It's not unique to this, this particular labor struggle, but it's ugly and, you know, we should just call it out. So what's the next step? What happens next now? They've got to come back and say they're ready to talk to us. So that's, that's the, the obvious next step. They just need to get back into a room and talk. And do you have any, any sense of an idea of when those talks are going to start again or what, what's going on within the AMPTP that's causing the, this latest delay? Because you've said multiple times, the WGA has said multiple times that they're ready to negotiate, but here we're not getting, you know, from what the WGA laid out in the memo Friday after the meeting, it doesn't sound like the AMPTP is willing to engage on, on certain, certain issues. Yeah, I don't know. I can't look. I can't. It's always, Leslie. You know, it's impossible to get inside their heads, and we're not inside that room. A bunch of things could be happening. They could be negotiating amongst themselves about exactly what they're willing to offer. They could be delaying for the sake of delaying. At some point, I I almost don't believe that anymore. Um, and you have to also remember that there's a difference between the companies and the AMPTP itself. Uh, like I can't comment on it directly, but there were lots of reports that said that Carol didn't want to meet last Friday. I I don't know if the truth of that or not. So. The AMPTP strategy, which may be somewhat different from the individual company strategies or even the company's strategies together, are part of the problem for us in parsing exactly what's going on. You can never quite tell behind that curtain. It, here's the thing, though. No matter what, um, they have to come back to the table, right? They have The companies have no choice. All the chatter you've been hearing, the comments from the companies themselves, the, all of the reports of, the, of outreach, that's because the companies have come to understand that this is no longer a, a, a tenable strategy. And Wall Street's repeating it. The, the Wall Street analysts all over are saying, we don't understand what the companies are doing. This no longer makes sense. Uh, they can't work without product. I, we can, over the course of the next half hour, talk about all of those things, the things that companies are facing. But it, it's an inevitability that companies that make TV and film have to go back to making TV and film with the asterisk that who knows what Amazon and Apple are up to because they could obviously, you know, never make another program again and it wouldn't affect their bottom line. And that's part of the problem when the industry has players in it for whom the thing that we all love and, and value is, is, an, is a, a side gig for them. It's an asterisk. Yeah. Not their core business, of course. So. Well, one of the things that we've been talking about from the very beginning was the possibility that at this moment, the individual members of the AMPTP did not have necessarily the same agendas and that at some point, if we waited long enough, the possibility of a splintering was going to increase, whether it was Netflix going off on its own or whomever. As we are at 100 days, from your perspective, does that seem either more likely or more logical? I think it's hard not to look at the situation and say the differing interests of the companies and the ways in which this strike affects them differentially means that at some point they may need to assert their own interests rather than the interest of the group. 
But I'm not surprised, to be honest with you, that no one has broken off yet because the AMPTP process has been highly effective for them in putting downward pressure on labor. And it has not yet gotten back into the room with us. So in some sense, I, I think it needs another step for that to happen. I, I, I you know, I, I can easily imagine that the companies would say, well, I mean, Carol would say, you got to give me a chance um, to go back in and negotiate. And she's going to She's going to have her chance, and then we'll see what's hap- what's going to happen. Oh, look, I I can't obviously again. I can't predict. I can't get into their heads. I we, you, you and I and everyone sort of reach the same general conclusion, which it does not entirely make sense for Warner to tie its future to Apple's point of view about the industry. And if Apple is intransigent, I'm just making this up and says we will never go back. We will never say yes. The writers and the actors will either cave or we'll never make another television show or movie again. Warner could do that, right? Because Apple would be fine and Warner would be, would disappear. So at some point that becomes a problem. Where that, pl- how that plays out at what moment, what Apple is doing, and I'm just making it up again, it might not be Apple, it could be Amazon, it could be it could be Netflix. Um, although I believe that Ted Sarandos understands and wants to make TV and movies. I think he does. I think he uh, Plus to. he comes from a union family after all. So uh... <laughs> he, does. he does. And I, you know, I, at this point, um, I would probably, I prefer to take that as, as uh, meaningful rather than as a game that he's playing. Mm. Uh, so, so that's, that, that's the truth of it. I think they've got to play this thing out. They're playing it out extraordinarily slowly. Uh, and I think the extraordinary slowness seemed for a long time to be, I'm sure from their point of view, advantageous as they sought to get a deal with the DGA and then with SAG and then maybe just test us again. But at some point, the balance shifts and the pressure on them to actually have product in the pr- pipeline, free cash flow aside, which is you know great, but not actually going to provide for the future of any company. They've got to get back in and make a deal. I mean, it's, it's not a... It's, it, it's not an exaggeration to really say, as we've said over and over again, for both us and the actors, there is no way around us. I mean, this, this industry doesn't work until we get back into it. And I'm very happy to repeat again, if we want to talk about it, the reasons why this existential fight means that labor is in this for the long haul, that, they're, that, that the, the tactic of saying, can we weaken you and scare you and make you prefer to end the pain of the present rather than dream of a better future is going to trip that. But that's just not going to work with us because as writers understand, if the, if the jobs when they work well don't pay enough to stay in the business, or if AI is out there replacing all of us, or if companies are willing to say we put optimization over creativity and we'll fire most of you and overwork the rest of you there's just no incentive for us overall to say look we're gonna we're gonna take a crappy deal and get back to work so the companies have turned us into fiercer battlers for our own rights because of the you know the bottom line of this struggle is existential rather than oh what what more can we gain Um, and i'd love to talk about that by the way because i think part of the thing that's going on here is is the companies just having to come to terms with that. The companies having to come to terms with two things at the same time. One is that we understand that they're going through a tough time, that this transition is difficult, that they have issues with their business model, they've got to work all of that stuff through while they're paying a lot of talent, a lot of money, and spending a lot of money on content. And all of that can be true at the same time as they are effectively driving to destitution the majority of their workforce. 
that this MBA minimum negotiation, which is about the ability to survive long term in the business, really has very little to do with some of their larger cost problems. We don't cost them that much in these negotiations. We're not going to, even if they give in, and they have to come to terms with that. Um, and it may not matter anymore that they don't understand the argument. They don't have to agree with us. They don't have to, it doesn't, at some point, them believing we're right or wrong doesn't matter. They just have to understand that we have the power to insist on it. We have, yeah. we have the power to insist on our own survival. Yeah. You know, I want to go back to to Friday's meeting briefly, but sure. there was a sense of optimism going into that meeting from from the Guild membership um, that seems to now have evaporated. How important is it for both sides to be at the table talking and how much of a priority will that be for you? Talking is the only way forward. As I said, there's no way to, to, to break through this without talking. There was, I think there's always optimism because you can't be in a struggle for 100 days or nearly 100 days at that point and not say, oh, well, there's a tiny light at the end of a tunnel. I just don't know how long the tunnel is. But we put out an email to the membership on the Thursday before just reminding them that the AMPTP playbook, and I use that term meaningfully because they do tend to go back to the same strategy over and over again, is not to come right back in and say, okay, what do you need? Let's make a really good deal, but to test again, to see how little they can give us. In 2007, eight, they did it and talks led to breaking off. And by the way, even if we get back into a room and I, we have to get back into a room and we will get back into a room, I, I don't put it past them to continue to say, we'll give you a little bit. You know, the, one of the most important things that Carol said to Ellen on that day is the AMPTP's line, which is the DGA deal is the pattern. That's what you're getting basically on anything that uh, applies to you. And then we'll give you a few other things. Well, that's the same way they negotiated in a non-conflict negotiation. That's what they did during in 2020 during COVID. But they've got two guilds out on strike. They've got 170,000 people out on strike. You can't just use the same line over and over again and expect it to apply to every single situation. At, at some point, that becomes useless optimacy. So we're going to get back into a room we're going to talk at some point because the companies can't afford not to talk. We are going to say to our members that talking is the only way forward. And there always has to be some optimism that goes along with talking. It's better than not talking. But don't believe that the AMPTP's talking means that they are yet ready to reasonably talk, uh, confront the, the existential issues on the table. That could take longer. And if it takes longer, so be it, because the pressure is building on the companies themselves. The, the use of the DGA deal as a platform is something that has been vaguely inevitable since the DGA agreed to that deal. But when you actually hear <laughs> concretely that it's going to be. What is the mixture of emotions that you feel, particularly given that this was a moment at which a lot of people from the outside of the DGA were looking to the DGA saying, if you do this, you will be used as a platform in a way that isn't going to make other people happy, and they still did it. So how, how do you respond when concretely that possibility comes up? And by the way, the fact that the DGA approved the deal two and two days beforehand, they approved that deal with the AMPTP two days before SAG's overwhelming strike authorization vote. Right, right. Well, they had just waited. I mean, there, uh, two two answers to your question, Dan. Uh, the first is we've been through this before, so there's there's a level of oh, here we go again. 
right? <laughs> so it's not, I, I don't, I don't approach all of this stuff and I, I try to have fewer highs and lows in all of this than because it's, it's what gets you through it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, look, the DJ deal was never going to be a meaningful pattern for us. I, this is not, the DGA got a deal that they, that they felt was necessary for their members, but it, it couldn't possibly address 75% of the issues, and that's a made up number, maybe it's 80% of the existential issues that writers face. So using it is not particularly meaningful um, as, as a basis for our, our negotiation. There are pieces of this, like success, uh, a success-based residual that the DGA felt like it didn't need, and we feel that we do. The DGA doesn't get to make our deal. They didn't try to. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't put it on them. I put it on the companies. Right. The DGA made the deal that it needed to make, um, but they don't. The companies can't use that deal as our settlement because, oh, as I said, one hundred and seventy thousand people are on strike, telling them that's not going to be sufficient. It doesn't allow us to survive in this industry. Remember again, by the way, I should just say, and writers will understand this: residuals are the the thing that keeps writers going in the in the months where they don't have jobs right it's always necessary so it's not it's it, it's not like a little it's not a big prize it's it's a necessary part of the package that says to writers in a cyclical business you have a brief term of employment you get paid then and when you're not working there's some checks that come in that allow you to to last until your next uh, job comes up the fact that they can do that is the reason why the companies still have a workforce. So it matters for the company. So when we say, listen, having put in 10, 15, 20 years in a business, so I end up finally working on a show that not only gets picked up, not only stays on your platform, but actually gets viewed over and over and over and over again, I should get a little piece of that so that I can actually survive long enough to get my next job. That's just, that's part of the, as I, you know, we call it the survival package for writers. That's our, that's our, like the kit we keep in our closet in case of earthquakes, right? Right, and and we've seen so many actors and and writers as well during both strikes um, post and and talk about uh, some of the residual checks that they've gotten. Like I think I, you know, I talked to Mandy Moore and she was she mentioned getting a check for like eighty one cents for the streaming residuals for This Is Us on Hulu, and that was a massive deal. Yes. That Hulu okay. signed with, with just Disney. Just to be, just so things aren't vague, I just want to be clear, though, that I, I can't speak to to SAG's residual. Right, of course. Not doing it. Ours are, that's not the argument the WGA is making. The argument the WGA is making is very specifically about the idea that writers in those residuals, which are fewer and further between now because there are fewer episodes and writers write fewer of them, and we're not telling the company they've got to change that. That's just part of the business. Those residuals need to to reflect success. That revenue based residuals, and I know revenue is a concept that doesn't mean very much right now in the streaming world because of the way things have changed. But success based residuals are all over the contract, um, the MBA. They are not a new idea. So, and I don't want to hyper focus on it either. It's just right. one of the many areas. But it's a it's a good example of where the DGA deal was made by a, a, a guild that felt it got what it needed for its members. We understand that we need something different for ours, and we are going to determine the terms that under which we settle, not a union that's already made a deal, not when we're on strike, not when they've kept us out on the line for 100 days, not when SAG has joined us and we'll be there for 25 days or whatever it is by the time 
by the time our 100 marker rolls around. I don't know the dates exactly, so I may have gotten that wrong. Did the WGA work with the DGA before negotiations began or at least about and talk about strategy? I mean, because it, it doesn't seem like, you know, obviously we know that the DGA doesn't isn't a guild that, that tends to strike, right? There were conversations. I mean, I you know, I, um, there were conversations about what we were doing. They they were, you know, I don't want to characterize them as quantitatively or qualitatively. The, the truth is, it, the DGA deal is not really our issue right now. I mean, oh, oh, the only reason why it comes up is because the AMPTP is leaning on it in some ways, and we're saying knock it off. But I'm not focused on the DGA deal or what the DGA ended up doing. Um, that membership is 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 happy with, with what it did. That that's fine. That's great. That's good for them. It's good. We we are now involved in a struggle, uh, and SAG has joined us. We are, as I've said often, our issues are not the same, but our cause is the same. That's got a lot of power, and so when you just when you hear Carol begin meetings by say by mentioning the word DGA, you know, uh oh, we're back in the same old game with the with the same old people. Why did the WGA tell members not to criticize the DGA deal? Uh, I don't know if we specifically said you're not allowed. We don't we don't limit free speech. We tended not to do that because it wasn't really the issue that guilds are allowed to make the deals they want. I mean, the pattern idea is the AMPTP's idea. The DGA wants to make a deal and it feels like it took care of itself. Good for the DGA. We need to deal with ourselves. We're not worried about that. And in this case, as, as we said from the very beginning, because there was almost no overlap in issues, it wasn't even a practical problem. I mean, it was an issue in 2007 because we were fighting over the very same things. But in 2023, we're not even fighting over the same thing. So it, it became an almost an irrelevancy what the DGA was doing on most of its uh, on most of its issues and what we were going to need to do. In any case, as I said, it's I think we're and I just want to get pulled back into a hundred, you know, like 75 days ago or 90 days ago. It's really not the question going forward. Our argument is to the AMPTP, put down the old playbook, come into the room, have a real conversation with us and then with SAG about real issues that have led to two unions being on strike for the first time together in 62 years. You can't, you can't be blind to that, right? Um, You've got to work your way through all of your preconceived notions about how this was going to go and how you were going to end this and how you were going to put pressure on labor and what you think you owe to your workforce and begin to deal with the fact that that our survival is actually critical to your success. I mean, it's, it's, it's not easy to do to say to these people, here's a thing I would say is that I think the companies are caught in some ways, between a Wall Street regime that requires certain things of them that are very hard right now in the middle of transition, which is, you know, productivity and free cash flow and, you know, growth quarter over quarter on the one hand, and the ability to deal with the fact that practices that they have adopted over the last decade have made, have driven their workforce closer and closer to having to being unable to survive they have to figure out a way they will figure out a way to compensate their workforce fairly even as they have that sound in their ears saying wall street wants profitability wall street doesn't want you to spend money wall street you know all of that stuff they're going to have to get through that they're going to have to figure it out because not having us working 
only hurts them in the long run. It only diminishes their power in the business. It's yeah. really, it's really destructive. And they don't even have to listen to me. They can listen to all of these Wall Street analysts. Yeah. You know, you've, you've mentioned the last strike a couple of times, you know, and for clarity, you know, the 0708 strike lasted 99 days or 100 days with negotiations at the time resuming after 21 days. So that's still a fair amount of time to negotiate even after uh, starting relatively early. This time, there's obviously no roadmap for when negotiations will resume. Given what you know now after Friday, especially after Friday's meeting with the AMPTP, what is your expectation for how long the writer's strike will go on right now? Oh, there's no way to know. I mean, obviously, everyone has that same question. And there's no way for me to know that. I, I'll say what I've said before, which is, and David Goodman has said this as well, is once they get into a room and they're open to having real conversations, it'll go very fast. I mean, real negotiations don't take very long. Um, so it's really a question of how long it's going to take the companies to say, we understand that we have no choice, but to sit down and have a real conversation. Now I, I can't, I can't determine that. I can only tell you what you can see the same way, which is when, when the broadcast season begins to evaporate, when Sony moves all of its movies from big movies from 2023 to 2024, when you look ahead to next year and you say, what is Warner going to program? on HBO once they get through this. What is, you know, what is Disney Plus and Hulu going to do with not only no new originals, but no stuff from their linear services to put on? What are they all going to do? And how do they manage that month after month after month? Uh, You know, they're going to have to come back. The thing is, they're going to make a deal with us. And it's, and so that deal is going to be what some version of what we're looking for, right? That's what it's going to be. And if they keep us longer, that price doesn't go down, right? So all that's going on now is they're compounding their losses. Yeah. You know, the WGA, you know, according to the memo from from Friday to members, is now seeking the right for writers once a deal is reached to honor other unions' picket lines, which, you know, judging from social media, I've really seen that serve as a rallying cry for writers to support uh, SAG and other unions until they, too, can reach a fair contract. Mm-hmm. How did that go over with the AMPTP, especially considering they turned to the, the, the AMPTP turned to writers because they need scripts before they can get actors back on sets? Well, it's not, I mean, it's just the right to honor picket lines. So I don't want to get into it in too great detail because it's, I'm not going to, I don't want to talk about stuff that needs to be negotiated. I mean, the AMPTP, you know, as far as I know, you know, they say no to everything. So at least up front. So I'm sure they, you know, would, you know, until you negotiate it. Um, but this must be clear. It's, it's just the, it's the right to honor picket lines. It's not, it's, it's not a continuation of our strike. Um, you know, I do want to to press to here. Taylor Sheridan, obviously one of the most successful working TV writers in this moment, told THR in a cover story earlier this summer that he didn't support the whole minimum room size, which is a, a, one of the WGA's core issues. Others have ecu- have echoed those sentiments, including John Ridley. What do you make of their comments? I'll say a couple of things. First of all, I just want you to remember, I'm not going to emphasize any given one of our areas of negotiation because we have five or five or so broadly speaking areas that we need to you know, make progress in to make sure that writing is is sustainable for people. One of them is the uh, dismantling of the writer's room process. And part of the solution to that is to make sure that writers are hired. Um, so we're committed to that. 
we have 11,500 members. I, I don't worry particularly if somebody has a point of view that says they they disagree. I mean, Taylor Sheridan makes a lot of TV shows and he's good at doing that, but he's still just one voice. And John Ridley can can do the same um, about that. That's, that's fine. I, I think they're wrong. Um, I think the overwhelming majority of our members think they're wrong. When I say overwhelming, I mean overwhelming, 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 including showrunners. Um, and then hugely important showrunners who have just as much influence as Taylor Sheridan. So the truth is, I, I don't, I don't negotiate with Taylor, Taylor Sheridan. Taylor Sheridan can think whatever he wants. That's fine. It's not. Uh, it's not gonna. He doesn't. He doesn't determine our bargaining agenda. So, uh, so that's fine. Whatever. Whatever he wants to say, he can say. Um, how have uh, have you heard of members this this strike going FICOR? Oh, you know what? I actually don't know about that. That's a question you should ask somebody else. I have not heard of members, uh, particularly going uh, going FICOR. Uh, yeah, I've, Ridley obviously won FICOR last time. So Ridley, Ridley won FICOR last yeah. time, yes, exactly. So um, yeah. his his support of our agenda, you know, it's like I'm not I'm not I'm not turning to John Ridley first to say, are you okay mm-hmm. with what we're striking? Yeah. You know, we, we've talked about minimum room size. We've talked about AI. There was a uh, great op-ed on Time.com this week from from WGA member Simon, uh, yeah. who, uh, Simon Rich, who wrote about the dangers of AI yeah. and its effect on minimum room size. But as you look at some of the the issues that that you guys are have on the table, obviously this is going to be a negotiation once talks resume. But what concessions might the WGA make in order to get back to the table? Oh, Leslie. <laughs> you, don't, you don't actually think I'm going to negotiate with you here. I'm not going to. I mean, it's it's a valid question. It is. It's a valid question for you to ask in your head. It's it's not a question you could possibly expect a negotiator to have with you. Uh, we have said to the companies, and we mean it, that um, the solutions to these problems um, that we face are can be negotiable. Um, you know, they have an idea of what formula they want to apply to success based procedurals. They should feel free to to suggest one. Um, what we won't negotiate is the existence of the problems themselves. So we're not going to walk out of this negotiation with a company say, listen, there are like five different ways for you to die. You can be saved three of those ways and then we'll kill you the other two. It's like, that's not going to happen. So, so um, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have a conversation about what our bottom line is for obvious reasons. Um, and, and all we have said, and we continue to say is when we say that these basic questions underlie the viability of the writing profession going forward. We cannot walk out of here without a settlement that actually takes care of those in some way, right? Those, they have to be dealt with. All of them have to be dealt with. They can be dealt with in other, maybe it will be dealt with in other ways than we have proposed, or there may be variations inside that. Although I don't want to promise that every one of them is infinitely flexible. For example, we got to be really careful on language on AI to make sure that AI does not have the power to replace writers. Um, but uh, that's all I'm going to say. So and people can ask that over and over again. It's fine. Everyone asks that. And we say to the membership, we don't negotiate with anyone but the AMPTP. We're not talking about our bottom line. Doing that only advantages the companies. It doesn't advantage us. So uh, I I respect you for asking it, but you can respect, you can understand why I can't answer. Of course. Uh, 
A point that you've made a couple times that's an interesting one is the idea that with SAG, you guys have common cause, but not common issues necessarily. For around, for however long the first chapter of this strike was, for the first 75 days or whatever, you guys had the pulpit yourself to put out the message that you wanted on what it was that writers wanted. And then obviously SAG comes in and either because of their visibility, they kind of take the pulpit or else the pulpit shifts to the handful of things that are common. What have you guys been able to do to make sure that the writer-centric issues are still a thing that people are remembering rather than just getting lost in the common cause? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, a, it's a really good question. Uh, I, I don't worry about it too much. I mean, you know, I put out a video, we um, we send emails to our members, we're out on the picket lines every single day. All of our NEGCOM and board members are there all the time. We're in constant com- communication with the members. If I thought or any of us thought that, that the membership was beginning to lose track, um, we'd focus on it and we'd make sure we repeated it. I, if you look at the comments on social media or the way our the writers answer questions when the media is there on the picket lines. I think it's pretty clear that writers have internalized these things so deeply that the, the message is pretty uniform. I'm not worried about our our message getting lost. Well, but maybe I'm not worried. I don't think I'm worried necessarily about your members and about the writers. I think I'm worried about the the public perception, the optics, whatever it is, where if the conversation for 50 days or however long was room size, uh, you know, whatever, whatever other things were that you guys wanted. And then suddenly SAG comes in and it shifts to exclusively residuals, which as you say, it's not the same conversation anyway, or if it shifts entirely to AI, but it's still a somewhat different conversation that the concerns are. What do you have to do to make sure that the public still remembers that the things that maybe we're talking about at this moment aren't going to be the same things that are going to satisfy both of these two guilds that are on strike. I don't, I don't I'm not worried about that particularly. First of all, I mean, the, I don't, convincing the public was never key to winning this battle. Um, the fact that the public does broadly understand is really advantageous, is really nice. I think it makes writers feel better when it's people write about that stuff. But I don't expect the public to get the, the intricate nuances of this all the time. And the fact is, as you mentioned, those things like AI and residuals, they do overlap. And the public does broadly understand the idea that creativity can't be replaced by some kind of computer generated average of all of us or whatever, as we talk about, or that success needs to be compensated for. They understand broadly what it means to say that we're fighting not to have the gigification of our economy take over so that you can't actually survive long term in the business. But I, I'm not worried about does the, does the, uh, you know, does the public understand the intricacies of you know, what the difference is between our residual formulas that we're, we're asking for? Or does the public really understand fully what it means to say that writers need to be hired through production? That stuff's fine. I mean, the thing that I think has registered really well and, re- and, and resonates is that the idea that labor those who feel powerless actually have some power. They are not meaningless in the face of large corporations and the rise of tech, that they will have their day. Um, and those things are the things that matter. That The idea that that the jobs have become gigs, all of those things, they, they resonate, I think, deeply across 
the public. They certainly do. Anytime I talk to people in journalism, you know, they resonate with journalists as well. I don't mean that you're not, you know, it's just like, it's just we're all facing versions of this. And that's what matters. It's a, so in, 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 in anything, I think the tech has really helped us because now there's a recognizable face. There's someone, you know, who's saying those things. And so the expression of worker power by those people is enormously advantageous. This has not gotten more confusing, I think, because SAC has joined us. It's gotten it's gotten more powerful. You know, one of the things that we've heard from listeners, you know, diehard fans uh, of uh, television specifically, they always, you know, we always hear about show, our showrunner interviews. You previously joined us to talk about Julia, for example. But one of the things that we've heard uh, from listeners is wondering, you know, if the Guild has considered asking fans or even members to boycott streamers. Is that something that you guys have talked about as as a Guild? And people raise the question. I, you know, I think we feel like we're not we're not in the business of running nationwide boycotts or anything. But if fans feel like doing that, fans should take that on. But that's not, you know, we're not we don't we we are not uh, we're not set up to make those arguments and follow through and know what success means or any of that stuff. So uh, I get it. I appreciate the, um, the, the sentiment. I will say this also though, I think the fans without coordination will begin to do that because all these companies know that churn is a big problem and that as the offerings, the original offerings become sparser and sparser, I think people are going to say, why am I spending all this money? It was a really interesting chart. I don't know. Was it, was it a Hollywood Reporter who put it out or was someplace else? And I don't, I don't mean to, uh, you know, uh, ask you to support some other um, platform about which, which of these streaming services relied mostly on foreign content. Um, and one of the interesting parts about it was that many of them have almost no foreign content, but even the ones that did, the foreign content didn't drive the majority of interest. So even with Netflix that had huge number of foreign titles, only a tiny percentage of the interest in viewing came from that, which is not to say there aren't amazing shows from other countries. But these companies, even Netflix, they need the shows that we make as a part of the mix. They need new stuff as well as old stuff. And so even if the fans don't end up saying we're going to proactively boycott in support of talent, they're going to indirectly use their consumer power by saying, hey, we, we, don't, we don't pay for nothing. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, I want to just re really quick go back and touch uh, on something that an, an issue that's popped up out of SAG-AFTRA. You know, the Performers Guild has really drawn the ire from both performers and even writers for its willingness to grant waivers during its strike. I'm hearing that the WGA would oppose waivers. But if someone came to the Writers Guild and agreed to such things as room minimums and health insurance for any length of a mini room and as well as acceptable AI language, would the WGA grant that network or studio or streamer a waiver? No, we're not going to grant. We're not granting waivers. I mean, we will, as we said, we will if a if a meaningful player comes and wants to make a full deal with us that changes the complexion of this negotiation. We're open to making that deal, but we're not we're not granting waivers. We did that in two thousand seven and eight. It wasn't advantageous. It led to complications. That is not a you know a commentary on SAG. Um, we're not doing it. They're doing it. I'm not going to comment on their official policy. That's their their business, not mine. But we've been clear. We're not we're not granting waivers. What is the status right now of, of Guild-related relief funds, and what is it necessary for the Guild to do at 100 days to maintain not just momentum, but 
but team spirit, I guess, as it were, when some of these strikers are presumably past the point of being able to afford this stoppage? Right. Well, two, those are two questions, and they're good questions. So first of all, um, the, the, our strike fund is vibrant and has, has enough funds to take care of us for, you know, for a good long time. And we've been, I don't have the details on it because that's not, you know, that's not my department. Um, but I know it's true because Betsy Thomas, who is the secretary treasurer of the guild, you know, reports back that they're actively engaged in doing that. We have that, we have welfare funds. So we are, we're distributing funds to people who need it. Um, and at the same time, the entertainment community fund in a huge way and the motion picture and television fund also and other places have been they have been raising an enormous amount of money we've been very helpful with that we kicked that off with the entertainment community fund but that is picked up to an enormous degree and so funds are being made available to people so i did, i think it's a i would say you know because i talked about this being a shameful moment for the companies it, what it is on our side is an incredible act of bravery and selflessness that you're watching, right? I mean, this is really difficult. I don't, we cannot overstate how hard it is for people to not just pick it for 100 days, but to go without work and to look at a future and not be certain what it's going to be and not know when this is going to end. And so to do that, every writer for each other, you know, screenwriters for television writers, television writers for screenwriters, all of them for Appendix A writers. That's that's an act of, of, of some beauty and bravery. Um, and then on top of that, while the companies are refusing to even talk about paying us any of this to be raising millions and millions and millions of dollars for each other, and not just us, but IATSE and the Teamsters and SAG. I mean, we're taking care of each other, even while the companies refuse to, to take care of us in the, in the most basic way or the AMPTP does. So um, I think we're we're doing okay on that on that front, but I don't want to pretend like the money that you get from any one of those funds is the same as working, and it's not it's not making people whole. It's still really scary. Uh, it's a this is a tragedy that's going on. I mean, when we talk about writers who because they work for too few weeks and a too low pay can't actually make it without second jobs or people who have to leave the business or screenwriters who work for a year without being paid and then are have to have to choose between fixing that problem and going you know and going hungry now and facing economic destitution that's a tragedy that the companies are perpetrating we understand that um the only way through it is with resolution and bravery we we combat that by picketing together by you know holding meetings when we need to, by sending out messages to each other, by being ready to talk to each other. I mean, all of those things are the ways that we we keep going. We keep going mostly because the cost is existential and we have no choice. Um, I expect that as we do it, people will become more scared and more tired, and there's no way around that. That's the way a battle like this goes. I can't stop that from happening. Um, but tiredness is not the same as lack of fortitude or determination. And the company should not mistake one of those for the other. So I don't know if that's the full answer. It's, um, it's, a, it's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing that's going on. And, and, and terrible things are often filled with the incredible um, dignity of human uh, you know, the, the way human beings respond. And that's what writers are doing and that actors are doing. I mean, obviously they're not as far along, but they may well be pushed in exactly the same way. And so many of their members are also desperate. Uh, I don't want to diminish that at all, but I want to say 
at the same time is we are not going anywhere. We are not stopping. We have no choice. We will not. We have the existential nature of our cause on day one has not diminished on day 100, and it will not diminish on day 110. And we will not have stayed out on this on the picket lines for this long and fought this hard and suffered this much only, as I've said, to half save ourselves, only to come away with a contract that doesn't mean that the profession we go back to is a survivable profession for us. It's not for me or for the other showrunners on the on the NEGCOM. It's for thousands and thousands of people who are in the middle of their careers or just starting out who have no shot at the kind of careers that we had because the companies have systematically undermined that, even as they've made hundreds of billions of dollars. And now at this moment, which may be more difficult for them, we are coming and saying we need a piece of that back to survive. And woe to them if they say no, because what they are doing is bringing themselves down. The AMPTP and that process is undermining the business that we all need to continue they're killing the golden goose, and there is no reason for it. None of the things we're asking for are unaffordable for these companies. I can tell you the television stuff is essentially absorbable into episodic budgets. The feature stuff is virtually without cost. The AI stuff costs them nothing except some kind of imaginary cost savings they have by replacing creativity with technology. None of these things are impossible for them to do, and they will do them if not because they believe it matters because we have the power to make them. Yeah. You know, you mentioned these big companies, but, you know, uh, member AMPTP member companies, including Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount, revealed in their earnings reports that they're actually saving money by being media companies that aren't actually producing media right now. What do you think, uh, why do you think that's a message that they're putting out? And what's your reaction to, the, to those statements? I mean, look, that's a that's a the fact that we talked about before that the companies have to deal with a Wall Street world. So um, David Zaslav knows, Bob Iger knows, all those guys who are very smart and understand know that that is both true and not long term relevant, right? They 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 are they're they're freeing up money right now by not creating assets. And they don't need, and that amount of money, by the way, that they're saving is a tiny piece of their operating costs and revenue. It's, it's a meaningless amount of money in some ways, but it's devastating in the long run, right? None of them think um, they've, got to, they've got to talk about free cash flow because that's what Wall Street wants them to talk about. And it's a metric that seems to matter now. But um, when that is created by the cessation of the process by which they create assets, it doesn't make any sense long run. And they know that. So, so it's really irrelevant. It's a, it's a kind of a smokescreen on these things. It has nothing to do with the way things are going to work going forward. Now, Amazon and Apple, they are a completely different thing. And as I said, I think we really need to be concerned as a country about when the, when, I mean, as a, you know, and people who care about culture, when Amazon and Apple can get up and, and have their, their quarterly earnings calls and not even mention entertainment, right? They don't even talk about it because it's entirely- yeah, they don't valid. break out the, those results, yeah. Yeah, they don't even break out the results. It doesn't even matter. So if the argument is we can take, we can actually take some control over and decimate the entertainment business because it's irrelevant to us, you know, that's, that's a real problem for everyone. It's a problem for writers and actors and directors, but also a problem for the public. Right. It's, uh, it's a problem when when Comcast can say, I don't know, we're mostly a broadband, a broadband company. I and mean, that's just not good for um, for Hollywood. Having said that. Warner, 
Disney, Sony, Comcast to a large extent, Paramount Plus, those companies, they, they Netflix, they need to create product. Um, and a, a pile of money on their shelves without anything for people to watch next year is only going to come back to haunt them. And they know that full well. So they need to get through their earnings calls. But um, I don't think any Wall Street analyst is uh, is uh, fooled by, you know, the, the short term vision that says, look at us. We didn't spend anything. We didn't make anything. We're rich. Yeah. You know, there's been a lot written about who could be a white knight. You know, we've heard uh, during the strike, you know, with speculation of who could be the new Lou Wasserman of this era. Everyone from Peter Chernin to Ari Emanuel to Nancy Tellum and Mark Pedowitz have been thrown around as potentials in the press. Um, we know that there's been some back channeling going on. And we've also heard that some pol- political folks like Gavin Newsom or Karen ba- uh, Bass could also be involved, possibly. Who do you think has the potential to do so, and who do you trust? Well, we don't need a mediator, so that's like an old. We, that's an old, like, uh, like an old wives' tale. It's like you need somebody to come in and have a conversation. We're perfectly okay talking to the companies, and they should be perfectly okay talking to us. Whether they need a mediator internally is an entirely different question. Um, um, but uh, and I appreciate everyone who wants to help. But what's necessary here is for the companies to get it together and be ready to talk about the issues on the table. We we've been clear about that. They all have our numbers. They know where to reach us. We've been around the whole time. We it's a it's a misfocus. You know, it's a and maybe it's a way of getting away from actually doing the job they need to do is allowing this who's going to mediate between the two sides kind of thing. A mediator is not necessary. What's necessary is the other side to say, let's talk. Yeah. You know, closing uh, this interview, what kind of message, what is your, let me do a clean take of that. I always, <sighs> okay. Wrapping up, we're on day 100 of the strike as we record this here. What is your message to writers and to the AMPTP? A message for the companies, the writers, and the AMPTP. The message to the writers is, well, and I'll start in the other direction. My message to the companies is we are your allies. Um, we are your asset. We are the way in which you create value. Um, and we are here and ready to have a conversation about how that's going to happen, where we share enough of that value um, that's both fair and allows us to survive in the business as we have over the past half century. It's good for you and it's good for us. So we need to get past the rhetoric and we need to get into a room and talk. We'd say to the AMPTP, as we said before, put away the old playbook, stop standing in the way of your own companies, and come back to the table. Um, we will be here. We are ready to have a conversation about all of our issues, but they have to be all of our issues because each of our issues is, as I've said, part of the story that makes writing a sustainable future. And we will not be asked to choose which way we're going to starve over the next 10 years. We're going to, we're going to save ourselves. As for writers, I would just say that I, uh, they are the most remarkable, impressive uh, group of people I could possibly meet. The way they behaved over the last hundred days is is actually it really is a, an act of extraordinary bravery um, and endurance, um, and no one could ask them more from them. What I've said to them before is the fight that we've fought these hundred days is no less important now than it was before. The real job now, and it was always going to be the job, is to fight through the fear and the uncertainty and the tendency to think through, well, how can we end this without getting exactly what we need? Um, And that all we need to do at this point is to hold firm and to hold on to each other 
and to remember why we got here in the first place. If we do not back down, if we do not tire, do not give up, they have no way around us, we will win. Um, and that's what we're going to do. And with SAG by our side, we're more powerful than ever. So um, it's a message of love and respect and sadness for the writers, but of, I would say, renewed certainty that that the the fight is more important than ever before. I, you know, I don't want to go on forever, but the way in which the AMPTP has behaved, the way in which it seeks to starve us rather than to pay us, the way it ignores us, is only evidence that we are still in a business that will do anything it can to labor that it's allowed to get away with, right? It is all more proof that the battle is only won when we stand up for ourselves. So there will be no path forward for writers or for actors who do not say enough, right? There is no mercy here. There is only a, 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 a resolution that comes out of our power, um, and that's what we intend to achieve. Chris, thank you so much for, for joining us again. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Leslie. Thanks. Number three. Up third, this week, Disney had its earnings call, and they talked a lot about money and how to get more of it and how to reach deep into your pocket to get even more of your money and other various things. So Leslie, let's break down some of the most exciting, and I put exciting in quotation marks, <laughs> nuggets from this week's Disney earnings call. Yeah, definitely a few newsy uh, nuggets during the earnings call with Bob Iger. But uh, the first thing uh, that popped out to me is that Disney is going to follow Netflix's lead and begin cracking down on password sharing for its streaming services starting sometime in 2024, Dan. And the quote that I read was something along the lines of there was no serious impact to Netflix for doing this. So you know what? We're going to do it, too, which is obviously means that everyone else is going to do it at some point as well. Because when you see that a streaming service that subscribers have plateaued or started to decline, you have to find other ways of getting them to sign up. And this is one of them. I would even say it looked in the most recent network uh, Netflix earnings call as if it had a very, very positive impact on adding subscriber numbers. So, uh, you know, who again, who can blame them? I, I don't know that there had been the kind of cultural sense that everybody was sharing passwords. Like with Netflix, the idea that people were sharing passwords with their parents and with their the brother or whatever, it, it was kind of a part of the joke the entire time. And for a long time, Netflix just played along with it. I, I don't think that that's ever been the case with Disney Plus, but I, I think it's probably the reality that, of course, people are sharing their passwords for all of these streaming services. So <sighs> I don't know. It's still as as ways of getting more money out of the consumer. This one, as in pay for the thing that you're getting makes slightly more sense to me than the next thing you're about to talk about, which is pay more once again for the thing that you're getting. That's right. Yeah. Iger also announced this week that starting October 12th, it will raise the prices on its ad free tiers in the US for Hulu from 15 bucks to 18 for Disney Plus, which rises from 11 to 14 bucks. And ESPN Plus, which goes up a buck from $10 to 11 Disney also announced that it would have a new bundle of ad-free Disney Plus and Hulu for $20 a month 
as both services will be combined into a single app later this year. So that makes a ton of sense, Dan, in terms of combining those two services and leaving ESPN Plus out of that equation. So there's some cost savings there, but it's also like, again, you know, they raised rates, what, a year ago, which was now they're, what, two or three years old? I can't remember, four years old. Either way, this is just what's going to continue to happen, right? We've, we've talked so much on this podcast about the rising price of television, whether it's to produce it, it costs from COVID, the cost of actors, the, you know, the, the war for writers and top producers, and all of the shortages of thing, things that you need to build sets and everything else that was created by COVID, plus all of the backlogs from everything and all of the, the, the financial impact that these conglomerates took uh, in 2020 because of the pandemic. So it's obviously not a, a big surprise to see this happening. But to me, it, it's it, what's interesting about it is the timing. Really, you're going to do this now when the content pipeline is completely slowing down because of the strikes and you're making some of these companies are making decisions to pull back on content until maybe the first quarter of 2024. Yeah, the look, it's, as always, it's the optics of all of it. And it's the optics of the fact that all of the streamers have raised their prices during this strike as they're all beginning to figure out that they're going to have less programming. So if you step back and look at it from the outside, it's here, we're going to be giving you less stuff. Now give us more money. There's no question that that is how it looks. Is that the reality? It certainly could be the reality for the next few months, though if this doesn't click in until October, we'll see. But it's simultaneously the two things that we've been talking about over and over again, needing to make more money and consolidating these various various services, etc. But also the attempt to encourage people towards the ad tier as well. So that's kind of the two different directions this goes. Is, is sure, we would love you to bundle because we would love you to have all of our stuff because we're going to squish them all together at some point anyway. But if you're not going to do those things, really, 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 what we would love for you to do is watch some advertisements so we can make some money off of that. So it's it's both of those things at once. Yeah, it's the exact same thing I, I would have said, or I did say a couple of weeks ago, whenever the last uh, streamer did the exact same thing, which was at a certain point, people really are going to start performing triage. And at this exact moment, it's going to be even easier than other times to perform triage and to go, well, if, if they're if they're only premiering one show every two weeks for a little while because this is what the strike does, why wouldn't I subscribe for a month, unsubscribe, subscribe to something else, subscribe back? I, to me, in the short term, this feels like it encourages churn as much as anything else. But what do I know? Yeah, yeah. I think they I think they assume that people are also really really lazy and once they subscribe most people don't rotate in and out. I think I think lots of smart people obviously lay out their their streaming services and do one per month or whatever it is and that's how they live. But I think the assumption is and I think this is I think this is the assumption for most online real um uh, retail of any sort is they just assume that once you put your credit card in and have it auto build that you forget that you're doing it. And I think that's probably what everybody is hoping is that you just simply say, okay, well, I'll, I'll click on the the change in terms of services, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Every now and then I'll, I'll, I'll get a credit card bill and, I'll, and I see something that I'm paying for every month and not using. And I'm just like, God, I need to do that. And then 30 minutes later, it's completely slipped my mind and I, not to be thought of again until I get the next credit card statement. Oh, so and, and totally right. Yeah. And things in the past couple of months have been, past couple of months, past 12 months, whatever it is, uh, 
as fears of inflation have spread and whatever, just everything is going up. And so, yeah, I, I, I assume everybody looks at their credit card statements and if they haven't, if they aren't the sort of smart, uh, intelligent person who carefully itemizes every month, if they only look every couple months, absolutely. They're like, wait, I was paying, I was paying X amount for this just six months ago. Why is it so high now? Yeah. The thing that gets me is the cable, my cable bill. It's like 210 bucks. It's cable and internet. And we pay for premium um, for HBO and Showtime and everything else. But it's like, it's, you know, I used to call them every year around the holiday break and try to get my, the you know, my bill, uh, you know, bumped down again, see whatever promotions they had. And it was always successful. It always took like two hours of my day, but still it was worth it financially speaking. Now it's like, they're so inflexible that it's just like, it's like, this is what, what it costs. You can't, there's no other promotions. This is just what it is, period. Like the last time it was like three hours on the phone and I still got nowhere except I was frustrated and I can't cut the cord because that's the only way that I watch Dodgers. So I can get rid of HBO, but then I'm paying 15 bucks a month for max or whatever it is. And it's just, you know, it, it I'm, I'm just venting. No, no, tr- trust me. I actually, I actually had that experience just this month on wait, when did my cable and internet get so damn expensive? Uh, and yeah, it is the it is the reality. So okay, what else came out of uh, the the Disney fun? Yeah, um, basically we're we're going to continue to talk about the state of Disney's linear networks. That's ABC, FX, Freeform, National Geographic, and Disney Channel, as well as its offshoots. Because Iger said that he expects the company to focus on three areas of growth drivers. It's film studios, theme parks, and streaming. And guess what wasn't mentioned there? Linear networks. So Iger said that Disney is looking into, quote, a variety of strategic options for those networks, which honestly, it could pose a problem given that Disney relies on content from linear. So uh, episodes of something like Grey's Anatomy, for example, wind up on Hulu the day after they air, right? So those, those shows help really populate Hulu, and there's a big percentage of Hulu subscribers that subscribe to that service just to get those next day episodes because they don't have broadcast, they don't pay for whatever that is. So Iger said it wouldn't be anything that the company couldn't deal with if they did decide to, to unload ABC or find a strategic partner the way that they're doing with ESPN. So it's just an interesting question of what will Disney do with all of its linear networks? So when you look at at the bottom line here, Disney reported that linear networks generated $6.69 billion in revenue and $1.89 billion in profits for the quarter. And while that sounds huge, it's actually down 7% and 23% respectively from the same period a year ago. So ratings on the decline, costs of, of shows going up, lack of new content. Yeah, these are going to con- definitely continue to shed money. So what happens next? Can you imagine Disney not owning ABC? That idea is just, just I can't wrap my head around it. Then again, anyway. I couldn't imagine anyone, el- anyone else owning CW and look where we are now. I can't imagine $1.89 billion in profit for a quarter being a bad thing. But, you know, so it's all it's all a failure of imagination of different yeah. kinds. Um, and especially in the middle of a, you know, strike-related situation, a strike-related situation in which Bob Iger stuck his foot in his uh, mouth a couple of weeks ago. So how did he yeah. address that particular kerfuffle? Well, he, it seems I would, I would bet money. I, I'd be willing to wager a bet here that a, a PR exec high up within Disney 
prep this statement for Iger because here, here, here's the direct quote. Nothing is more important to this company than its relationships with the creative community. That includes actors, writers, animators, directors, and producers. I have deep respect and appreciation for all those who are vital to the extraordinary creative engine that drives this company and our industry. It is my fervent hope that we quickly find solutions to the issues that have kept us apart these past few months. And I am personally committed to working to achieve this result. Yeah, okay. Basically, uh, this is after he he said that the actors and writers' demands were not realistic. So that, of course, is, you know, wound up being a rallying cry for both guilds. I was out at, at Disney on the picket line on day 100 this week. Still a lot of Iger signs, still a lot of, you know, considering this unrealistic, et cetera, on, on picket signs. So, Dan, what, what did you make of, the, of that statement? Uh, just what you said on that. Uh, there's There's nothing else to be said. Yes, of course. Somebody gave him a statement to say, and obviously, obviously he didn't like the way that his CNBC interview statements played in the media and presumably didn't like driving by picket signs with quotes from him on them because- Or his image. Did you see there's a picket sign with uh, Iger's face on Marie Antoinette? (laughs) Sure. It seems right. But like, I, I- Again, I don't know these people at all, but I definitely get the feeling that Bob Iger cares more about that than David Zasloff does. And so, and so, of course, he would attempt to come up with a more carefully worded version of the statement. And why not? You know, still in all, $1.8 billion in profits for the quarter. Indeed. How many writer strikes and, and actor strikes could you, could you resolve with, with uh, that money and still have a... a- sizable amount of left over. Oh, I mean, you just heard Chris Kaiser talk about how much mm-hmm. actually the things that they were requesting actually cost the studios and his version of it is that it cost them basically nothing. So, yeah, there's a almost, graphic going around of how much it would cost each of the big conglomerates and it's each one is less than 1%. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. crazy, but here we are. So, so yes, yeah. uh, who hasn't raised their fee- their uh, subscriptions? Who we can expect to raise their subscriptions next week? Is there anyone left, or or are we a couple months away from the next price increase? <laughs> I don't have the earnings calendar handy, Dan, but I'm sure you're not wrong. <sighs> too many, too many increased prices for my subscriptions. Yeah, but guess what remains free, Dan? The great outdoors, Leslie. TV's top five. That is true. That That is is true. true. And worth it. And worth every penny, Leslie. (laughs) Damn right. (laughs) Number four. Up next, the summer portion of the Television Critics Association's press tour may have been canceled, but the group of TV critics pushed forward this week with the announcement of winners of its 39th annual TCA Awards. And Dan... We talked about it at the top of the show, but The Bear and HBO's Succession were the big winners, each taking home two prizes. On the acting side, I'm going to let you say, actually, I'm going to let you uh, celebrate the acting stuff because I know you'll be excited about that one. In terms of program, other programming, Freebie, Breakout, Jury Duty earned the unscripted prize. Miss Marvel was honored in the family programming category. And the Netflix drama Beef earned the miniseries win. Dan, go ahead and, and, and celebrate some acting wins here. Sure. Uh, Racy Horn won for uh, Individual Achievement in Drama, and Natasha Leone won for Individual Achievement in Comedy, and uh, I was happy with both of those awards, and definitely serves as a little bit of a nudge in the direction of Emmy voters who were contemplating who to vote for and where, since 
both Ray and Natasha are eligible for Emmys. Uh, and this is, I believe this is still us honoring the first season of The Bear. So <laughs> it's all just every everything gets really backed up when you're on a strange awards calendar. So this is the same awards calendar as uh, the Emmys use, as opposed to the straightforward January to January calendar that the Golden Globes use. Perhaps the only thing that the Golden Globes get right is just keeping a simple calendar. Um, the the outmoded Emmy calendar based upon the fall te- television season and broadcast and all of that is unquestionably a little bit out of date, but so it goes. Um, yeah, this this was, there was a lot of good stuff. You know, look, I can, can I quibble about many, many of the awards? Of course I can. Um, starting with Jury Duty, which is not a reality show. It's not an unscripted show. It is a show that is 90% scripted. And most of the part that's unscripted was that guy, Ronald, nodding and smiling and looking surprised by things that people were saying off of a script. Um, The thing I said in my review is that the way that they structured that show, it was basically a scripted comedy, except one guy wasn't in on the script, which is very, very different from something like Joe Schmo Show, which has similar elements, but it was still a show where the people who were scripted, they were able to be unscripted when they talked about the things that they were doing, etc. Even the actors continued to be in character when they did talking heads that had nothing at all to do with Ronald. So it's it's a comedy. Didn't deserve to be there. Um, I can also, I, you know, let's, let's talk sacred cows. Uh, Mel Brooks won for career achievement. Okay, so let's let's get this out of the way. Mel Brooks is a god. No one needs me to say that. And Mel Brooks is not without his television honors. The guy created Get Smart or co-created Get Smart. He was a longtime writer on many of the very best comedy variety shows of the 50s and 60s. Of course he was. Was he really and truly primarily a television person. Has he been? I mean, he did have History of the World, which he was an executive producer on this year. Um, And he may or may not make a very, very brief cameo on an upcoming show that I'm not going to spoil. But still in all, there there are a lot of people who who have done a lot in television whose television resumes, only speaking about television resumes, are more worthy of a career achievement award than Mel Brooks. When so who comes, did you vote for here? Um, I vote. I I believe I consistently vote for casting director Allison Jones. Uh, but um, but we we for the most part, you know, we don't list in public the nominees for these awards. But I I tend to like to vote for uh, people with long television services, but sometimes people who aren't necessarily the biggest names. And so somebody like an Allison Jones, who is a casting director, who, uh, you know, just look at her credits. To me, she's kind of a no-brainer, and her achievements within the fil- the realm of television seem pretty astonishing to me. But anyway, look, give, giving an award to Mel Brooks is, you're, you're never going to feel bad about it. You will never look bad. This is, <laughs> we have, after all, at one point in the past, given and then rescinded a Lifetime Achievement Award to Bill Cosby. With with Mel Brooks, there is no risk of that. You will always be happy to have Mel Brooks's name on a list of people you have given awards to. Just 
is his TV resume, you know, anyway, whatever it is. Uh, so yeah, looking at the other things, succession winning for drama and program of the year does not seem like a huge surprise to me. And I'm probably completely okay with that. Uh, you know, last season and all of that, uh, the bear winning for comedy, lots to debate about whether or not it's a comedy. And that's a, that's a fine debate to have, but I, it doesn't bother me. And and like I said, uh, there were a bunch of other, the smaller awards, U.S. and the Holocaust winning for news and information. I, I like that very much because that is a well-deserved uh, win. Um, yeah, it's it's a good it's a good assortment of wins in a in a difficult year in which there were some things that we missed as a group. I will continue to lament the absence of, uh, of reservation dogs, et cetera, et cetera. I've definitely been noticing a lot of people popping up on Twitter who have been talking about finally getting around to watching reservation dogs. And so far, nobody has come and told me that they didn't like it. Um, I'm just warning you, if you come and tell me you didn't like it, I might have to block you, but <laughs> you know, you, you might find that worth it. So that's, <laughs> that's okay. I'm probably joking, but Am I really? I don't know. Uh, yeah. But let, let, let's not find out. <laughs> yeah, why would why would anyone truly want to find that out? Uh, we mentioned Miss Marvel earlier, so um, maybe maybe Miss Marvel gets a huge boost in its ABC airing because they can start <laughs> talking about it as uh, as TCA award winner for youth programming. Um, our colleague and friend of the five, uh, Alan Seppenwell, corporate sibling more than colleague, but, you know, is very happy about Bluey winning. I believe it won for whatever the the younger skewing version. This year we split out youth programming and family programming for the first time because there's been contentiousness regarding that. Um, and yeah, very happy with, with Beef winning for miniseries, uh, limited series, anthology series, whatever we're calling it at this moment, because Beef is a superior piece of television. And again, anything that encourages people to watch some of these things, I'm down with. Yeah. And uh, wrapping up, the Heritage Award winner is the Carol Burnett Show, one of my favorites growing up. Absolutely. No, again, like like Mel Brooks, I think if you go and look at the and again, any TCA uh, member knows I have issues with the Heritage Award because it feels to me like a an inconsistent and inconsistently applied award. And I think if you go and look at what has or hasn't won that award, it's a strange assortment, but like Mel Brooks, you you do not go wrong honoring the Carol Burnett Show. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. This week's major new launches include HBO's Telemarketers and Painkiller on Netflix. Dan, what you got for us? There's, there's some interesting stuff this week, but it, it is not a a huge week of television. So, so there you go, which perhaps explains why I watched all six episodes of painkiller on Netflix. Um, our colleague Angie Han reviewed it and I have to give her much credit for not mentioning dope sick until like two thirds of the way through her review because painkiller is completely and totally dope sick as through the slightly different prism that Peter Berg presents. So it is a, it is a more pugnacious version of dope sick. It is a more in your face version of dope sick. It is a less subtle version of dope sick and dope sick was not the least bit subtle. So you got that. So 
I do not think that it is worse than Dope Sick, but what I would say is I didn't like Dope Sick very much, and it has a lot of things in common. It is another uh, tale of the opioid epidemic, which struggles to balance actual real people, so that being the Sackler family, that being some of the legal type people from the Department of Justice, et cetera, et cetera, who attempted to basically regulate what had been unregulated in terms of Purdue and Oxy, um, and then attempts to use an awful lot of fictional composites to fill in the gaps. And so structurally, it, it is borderline identical to Dopesick. And I don't mean by any stretch of the imagination to imply that anyone ripped off anyone else. I think this is completely, if you were to say, how am I going to take a nonfiction book about the opioid epidemic and make it into a television show? What are the things I would need to do to make the story, I don't know, welcome people in? This is how you would want to do it. You would want to treat the Sacklers like the bickering dysfunctional family. I think probably they were a little bit more nefarious and succession-y in Dopesick. Here, they're a little bit more bumbling buffoons. Again, it is less subtle than Dopesick. Uh, and you have uh, Matthew Broderick playing Richard Sackler and all of that. And then you've got a lot of the same people on the legal side of things, though there's a different kind of point of entry character played by Uzo Aduba. And then you have a lot of very, very similar composite type fictionalized stories to illustrate aspects. So both of them have the version of here's a struggling person whose determination to do work caused them to get a workplace injury and their determination to get back to work caused them to get hooked on Oxy and they go through a very, very, very programmatic addiction spiral. And so... In Dope Sick, it worked because Caitlin Deaver was wonderful. In this, it doesn't not work. And I think that uh, Taylor Kitsch, in basically a comparable role and reuniting with Peter Berg, who, of course, directed the Friday Night Lights uh, pilot and executive produced the series, uh, multiple references to Friday Night Lights on this podcast, no harm to that, um, that that he's he's fine. I think that probably comparing it to Dope Sick, it doesn't have the gravity that came from um that that came from how good Caitlin Deaver was, that came from how good Michael Keaton was, et cetera, et cetera. It has to it's again, it's much more punchy, it's much more broad, it's edited with more of a sardonic sense of humor and and structured around it. And the things that work work and the things that don't work really don't work. I didn't think any of the Sackler related stuff worked honestly in the slightest. And it's not really Matthew Broderick's fault. I didn't think that Michael Stuhlbarge today, you know, had much to necessarily play in, in dope sick. Um, but you know, so, so painkiller, it, it moves along. It has some very good performances. I, I thought that, uh, West Duchovny and uh, Dina Shahabi are good in what was basically the Pharma Girls segment, the Will Poulter segment from from Dope Six. So it's you know people getting whisked into the marketing machine of Oxy, all of that. Uh, but 
end of the day, I just have a limited, I, I don't, I don't really have an appetite at this point for another limited series with the exact same structure about the opioid ep- epidemic. And so it's hard to, I don't know if there had been more television this week that I needed to catch up on, I probably would have, uh, checked out. Instead, I kept going. And that at least allowed me to get to the very end of Painkiller, which is completely ludicrous. The The last like five minutes, the tying things together aspect of it, absurdly ludicrous. So yay, I got to that. Um, I liked HBO's Telemarketers more. It is a three-part documentary series. And a lot of what they're using as the hook is that it has a very, very impressive uh, team of basically celebrity producers putting their name on it. So HBO is boasting that it comes from the Softie brothers, uh, Benny and Josh. They're boasting that it features Danny McBride, but also Danny McBride's whole kind of creative team, Jody Hill, uh, David Gordon Green, etc., as executive producers. The series was actually directed by Adam Bala Lowe and Sam Lipman Stern. And Sam Lipman Stern also kind of stars. The story is that basically he dropped out of high school when he was 14 and he went to work at a telemarketing firm in New Jersey. And basically he was filming it a lot of the time and realizing how shady it was, but only generally internalizing its shadiness, not necessarily digging deep into its shadiness. But gradually, as the years passed, he and a friend, uh, a recovering addict uh, who was the super salesman, they get to the point where they realize what they were doing was bad. And so they spend basically the better part of a decade trying to bring down the telemarketing business, not necessarily generally the telemarketing business, specifically the telefundraising business and its connection to different law enforcement groups and unions. So they dig deep. They're not necessarily qualified to do what they're doing. Uh, But um, Sam keeps referring in the documentary to Michael Moore, and you can see how that's what they see this as being, kind of a intrepid, muckraking citizen journalist kind of thing. It's a little bit comedic. It's a little bit investigative. It's ultimately most effective, really, as a as a friendship between two people who don't know how to set things right, trying to do the right thing. And, and I found that actually really kind of poignant. Uh, I've talked on the podcast and anywhere else anyone would listen about how a three-hour documentary series is not a thing. It should either be edited down to two hours or expanded to four hours. I think probably this one could have gone either way. I think it definitely this could have been a a 100 minute documentary at the same time. I think if they'd wanted to, there could have been more personal aspects that were explored and it could have gone to four to six hours easily. So it doesn't feel exactly the right length, but it doesn't feel disastrously. So I didn't learn anything that I found hugely revelatory about it, but I was interested by how they were going about this investigation um, I think people will like this, though, and I think a lot of people who haven't given any thought to the telemarketing process will find it revelatory, so there's that. And just as a last thing, um, we, we've decided semi-arbitrarily that this is the 50th anniversary of hip-hop um, that is on Friday. It's it's kind of pick a date 
whatever. You gotta gotta choose something. Uh, Showtime has a very very solid Bismarcky documentary that I believe they're airing on Sunday, and I really enjoyed it. It's it's if you just think of Bismarcky as being the just a friend guy who couldn't sing. And that's your only perspective on Bismarcky within the world of hip hop. Uh, Leslie is bopping to just a friend in the background. You, you can't hear her. Oh, Leslie, you got got what I need. need. Anyway, (laughs) I, I will definitely stop. Um, but yeah, so it, it really does show, both where he was on the ground floor of New York City based hip hop in the early 80s what it meant for his involvement whether it was as a pioneering of a certain kind of beatboxing whether it was the way that just a friend became kind of a petri dish for lawsuits involving sampling it it has some good perspective on his importance beyond just kind of a one hit wonder because he wasn't a one hit wonder. I I mean, he, (laughs) he was much more important than the general public perspective has always been. And the documentary, which is directed by Sasha Jenkins, uh, does a good job of contextualizing him. It also is, is very amusingly whimsical. It features, uh, puppetry. It features animation sequences. It features a lot of fantastic talking heads, uh, so yeah, I, I really strongly recommend the Showtime Bismarcky documentary, and I, I recommend Telemarketers. And if you have an insatiable appetite for limited series about the opioid epidemic that are basically identical, um, Painkiller is not worse than Dope Sick, but I didn't really like Dope Sick. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. Those suckers help spread the word of mouth. I've already mentioned that if you have questions for future mailbag segments, you can email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the numeral five at THR.com. You can also just come say hi to us on various social media platforms. She's at Snoodit with two O's. I'm at the fine print F I E N. Come say hi. We'd like to hear from you, but lots of ways to reach us. Anyway, until next week, Leslie, until next week, Dan, <laughs>